Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Stacey Eigel. Stacey is the founder of the global impact brand Boy Meets Girl and the author of the empowering new book, Embracing the Calm in the Chaos. How to Find Success in Business and Life Through Perseverance, Connection, and Collaboration. In her debut book, Stacey shares her 20-year journey of building her company from the ground up while powering through life's challenges. In this episode, we discuss the origins of her entrepreneurial spirit and tireless work ethic, the highs and lows of creating a business, the role that collaborations, not only with other brands, but with philanthropic organizations, played in the creation of Boy Meets Girl, and what it means to be a purpose-driven entrepreneur. Enjoy. Stacy. thank you so much for joining me today. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. I loved your new book, Embracing the Calm and the Chaos, How to Find Success in Business and Life Through Perseverance, Connection, and Collaboration. And one thing I learned was you are from Chicago originally. Can you talk to us about what life was like for you growing up? Yes. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. Um, Yes, I grew up in downtown Chicago. I am a Bulls, Cubs fan, Blackhawks fan, uh, although my dad's a Sox fan, Uh, and I'm a Cubs fan. Downtown Chicago, city life. Um, I am a true city girl because I live in New York City, so I haven't left the city. Um, But it was a great, you know, the 90s or, you know, I'm 80s, 90s um, girl in like, you know, middle school, high school um, was really like, it was an interesting time. You know, it was like six times the Bulls won (laughs) over the course of those years. It was a big sports town, um, but also it really was a place that like I got my formal like fashion training, like which is sort of unexpected in a um, in Chicago, right? Like you think of New York City and you think of Paris and you think of London and but not really like Chicago to find like the roots of retail and design. Granted, I did move to New York you know, after college, but I, um, I worked at the gap when I was younger. Um, before I worked at the gap though, I had, I was an entrepreneur because my mom was an entrepreneur and she developed a lumbar support. She was a physician assistant and she was an entrepreneur. And so this lumbar support she created was, you know, something that was in the medical field, but I was going to all the trade shows with her. So I would go to McCormick Place with her and um, and get to see like what it was like to work with buyers and sell a product. Now, this was a product which I talk about in my book um, that was one style number, one colorway, one price point, um, not the fashion business. And but but what was really interesting is that how you act with a customer, how you sell how you communicate doesn't matter if you're in fashion or you're in the medical field or you're selling hosiery. So it was formal training into like where I was going to go. And so, and my mom also 
went to, she was going to China at a time that no one was really flying there, it, female entrepreneurs, let's say, and was in factories where there were charm necklaces and canteens and this product that was like so 90s and would bring it back to me and I would sell those items to my friends in the classroom with Polaroid cameras and like make these books. And so I was like this budding entrepreneur that really like loved the selling piece of it and, you know, just cultivating these experiences for my friends, um, which then led me on to, you know, The Gap and Foxes and working at the Merchandise Mart. So I had this, this ability to be more in like retail fashion and seeing it in, in this vein on an entrepreneurial like level. Um, and I always wanted to be in fashion, like from a very young age, I just like knew I wanted to do that. And so we were able to like sort of scrappy, like find like, okay, here's a fabric store. Like there's one fabric store in the city and that was Vogue Fabrics and, you know, how, how to make your own pattern. So my mom was very, and my parents were very, um, and sister, like there to support me in what I was like dreaming of doing. And, and I would make my own clothes and dress my friends. And so that was really like the spirit. If we talk about like my childhood in terms of, encouraging me to go on my path of what I wanted to do like I definitely was never um in a very privileged privileged way like told you have to do this to succeed um you know you have to be a doctor you have to be a lawyer you have to you know be in this field in finance there was never that you have to do that it was you pursue you know what you want to do but you also have to work so if you notice, I'm telling you at a very young age, I was working, I was working at trade shows, I was working at the Gap, I was working at Foxes, I was always working, but I was able to have these places around me where I could learn. I always joke with podcast guests what their origin story is. When I was reading your book from such an early age, yours was so crystal clear. You talk about working at the Gap, but unless you've read your book, you were 12 working at The Gap. And at one point you were the highest grossing sales employee on the floor. And when you saw your name up there and you're that age, you knew you were able to connect with customers. You knew you were able to sell the SKUs and the product. And it was so interesting to me that throughout your journey to kind of get to New York, you were paving your own way. Even when you went to the University of Madison, your degree did not exist. You created your own degree and you were figuring out ways to get to New York during the summer to have experiences, to have internships. Can you talk about your first role in New York? Because you almost took a different job and then you switched. And I feel like sometimes people are afraid when they've already committed to a job, but they get you know that last minute offer and they're afraid how this is going to look, or is this the right thing to do? But you really leaned in and listened to your gut. Yeah, I um. So after many summers of um, interning in New York City, I was offered a job with Delius. Um, how I got that job with Delius, which it's not around anymore, but Delius in like the nineties and the two in those catalogs. Do you remember those, the catalogs? Those may, oh, when <laughs> those came in the mail, it was the best day. 
It was the best. It was the best. And they actually had like a comeback, I think like five or six years ago. It didn't really resonate the way it did back then because it was so special and it was, we didn't have, you know, the dot coms and the websites we have now or, or the TikToks or the, any digital platform. Um, so I got that job by calling a 1-800 number in, in that catalog um, and called the 1-800 number, got the customer service lady on the phone and <laughs> asked her who the buyer was so that I could get an interview. She gave me and somehow I got the number and called the, you know, that Monday, because again, we didn't really in 19, this was 99, I had email that we didn't have like any digital LinkedIn or anything like that. So, um, so I got on the phone and I got to the human resources department and I was able to get an interview with the buying team. And I was on Christmas break of my senior year. And I left early from a trip we all went to for Wisconsin winning the Rose Bowl. Um, and I left early with, from all my friends after New Year's to come here because I got the interview to New York City, got the interview. It was an amazing interview, got the job. Like I worked so hard from like all, I like carried my portfolio to that, you know, Christmas break. Like I, it was like, I was doing it and I got it. I landed it. And about after graduation, about two weeks before I, you know, was coming to New York, um, you know, ready to like get this job, live with four girls from college, get, you know, a two bedroom we made into a four, like that's New York city, how you can afford it. and. I got a call. It was like my sister's friend's friend was working at LA Tahari. And I got an interview. So like when I got to New York, I could get an interview. And I was like, oh, oh my God, like I worked so hard to have to get this Delius job that I really wanted. Um, and but I now can get an interview with this designer, the sportswear designer that, you know, at the time was much smaller company. And so I was like, okay, let me see, because this is going to be my first job, right. In like in New York city. And so I got that interview and I got the job for $10,000 less than the Delius job. And there was something about meeting like a team that I knew I would be really hands-on with and also being directly underneath the founder and I think like through the trajectory of my career anyone who's worked with me has moved on to really great positions because of what they've learned closely with the founder, right? And a lot of those people are like, I'm so close with still today, my old employees, because um, I'm so excited for where they've gone, right? And so for me, I, I sort of jumped from where I was, but I, I had to make a real like tough decision on here's this job that I worked really so hard for by calling the 1-800 number, getting it on my own, no connections, flying there, working it, showing my portfolio. Like, you know, after millions of people are wanting these jobs, right? And I was like, in the center of New York City, the lights are shining. I'm like, I see Times Square. I'm like, I think I gotta go with Ali Tahari. Like, I think I have to, I, I need to learn the inside of what makes a designer tick, what, how do you get the fabric in New York City? Where do you produce? I don't think I, I knew that 
that job at Delius wouldn't give you, give me that, which was a shame because I would love, I would still would have loved to be a fly on the wall to be there. Um, so I, I called on a payphone and called like from Times Square and I was like, called Delius and I said, you know, I've been offered another opportunity. I am so thankful. And unfortunately I, I can't accept, or I, I'm going to decline this position, which, you know, if you look back in time and it's like your first foray into the business, like that can be detrimental to your career that you've just not like you've gone back on something you accepted. Right. Like, I think it, it's such a small business that like people might talk, but I think it was also my, I was so young that they probably are like, it's fine. You know, we'll find an entry level person. Um, But I do believe that decision was very instrumental in my learning of what it takes to be a founder in the fashion business. I also think the way you handle those situations, if you handle them with respect and do it in the right way, I think that speaks volumes of your character and that comes across when you're either delivering bad news or put in a situation where you have to tell someone some news they probably don't want to hear. But with this first role, you were there till 10 o'clock at night. You were really hands-on and I was reading in this book and then I got such a pit in my stomach when I read that you got fired. I had so many follow-up questions just because you were late and putting on makeup with a colleague because you were going to an event. To me, I was like, that's not an offense to be fired for. But my heart broke for you because whenever you're in that position, especially if it's a job that you love, and it's not just like, hey, we're doing layoffs and everyone else has experienced it, you were fired. How did you bounce back from that? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned like, wait, how did that happen? And like my editors from HarperCollins were like, wait, so that's just what happened. Like, you know, they edited so finely, you know, with a fine sharp tooth, like, you know, just really like making sure they dotted the I's and crossed the T's because that's very important in any publishing house. Um, But that was the story. It was like, we were working late at night every night I'd be with LA in his office like picking fabrics I was a I was also like the designer assistant designer and I also would be his fit model like I did everything you know and and we were all very hands-on the team um and we were there like working and changing clothes to go out at night and like a girl was putting lipstick on me and the president fired me the next day and there was no reason like other than I believe, believe it was that that happened because there was no, there was no explanation. Have you other- ever seen Ellie since then or anyone on the team? Uh, and have you Ellie- ever been able to be like, what happened? I've never found out what happened. Ellie actually wrote me a year later or like that year, like a a happy new year for Rosh Hashanah card. I don't think he knew what happened because he knew this is his president. Um, about decade plus later, uh, Nancy Czar, who's in my book, uh, became the head of Roots Collaborations. And that's how we came together on my Roots Collaboration. Actually, that's 15, 20 years later since that date. So that's actually a full circle moment of my collaboration with Chloe Flowers and Roots 
Um, but she never knew, you know, it was like no one knew. So to answer your question, like, how did I feel? It was, um, you know, I had made this choice to like go to this, this other fashion house and took that leap and change of, you know, financial security and, you know, my paycheck. And I, I think, I mean, I was really numb, you know, and, 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 and we, I talk about this, like in my book about these moments that can bring you down and push you really low. Um, and especially like, it's your first job and telling your parents, like you've been fired. Um, so it was a really, I think you have sometimes I, I believe these moments have for at least for myself and for an entrepreneur, sometimes have to happen to keep you like in track and like push you to do what you're supposed to do. And um, I know I left there like just sort of needed to like have like a moment with my friends and my sister and like I would go to the Lower East Side vintage shop and like, and then I was like, okay, recruiter, a hundred interviews, let's go. Like, you know, it was like a moment of like ice cream, pity, crying. And then I'm like, okay, let's keep, keep moving. And if you notice in my book, I always keep moving. Right. And, and I learned that, you know, probably from my mother and my father, you know, people who had built things and, um, and that you just, you, in times of failure in times of trouble, you've got to find another path. And so for me, I just, I kept moving and I kept interviewing and I made new portfolios and um, opened my eyes to, you know, new experiences that I could do and learn from. And so that's when I found my next job, which was with IZOD, um, where I went from like women's sportswear to men's fashion. Um, but for me, I was like, oh, Izod's an iconic logo. Izod's been around for a while. There's a history of Lacoste, Izod, you know, when you think of Tommy and Ralph Lauren. And so all these greats and big companies. And I was like, oh, this will be a different structure for me to meet these salespeople and these designers and learn what it takes to sell to these distributions. And um, it became a great next step in my career. And then you were really fortunate that the vice president of IZOD, Helen Katz, did you a big favor, something that I was really shocked that she agreed to. And it was that you were selling and creating your own clothes on the side and working five days a week and trying to do that. It was just too much. So you asked her if you could go down to four days a week. And not only did she say yes, but she agreed to pay you for that fifth day, which I early on from a different podcast guest, Elena Bezer, she had this great quote and it was that you want to be the kind of woman that in a room of opportunities, you say other females names. And I felt like Helen showed that to you by understanding what you were doing, understanding that you were passionate and doing you a solid by saying you can still have your job, but I believe in you as well. I completely agree. And Again, it's like, I say this in my book, I'm like, who was I to say, hey, 
I've been working here and I love what I'm doing, but I would love to start my own thing and work here four days a week so I can do it. Like there's not many people who take that leap of faith to ask their advisor or their boss, you know, to do that. And I appreciate when people ask me things that you would normally not expect them to ask you so that they can be helped. Right. And so it was something that I just felt like it, I needed to do this for myself to, to be whole. And like, I knew I wanted to do my own thing, but I had to see, I had to make money. I had to have health benefits. And like, I asked her to do something that she really believed that I could do. And um, it's funny, Helen Katz, I think, is a in real estate now. She left the fashion industry and I owe her an email because she linked in me, I think a year ago. And I don't know if she knows she's in my book, but I think I was letting her know that. So I, thank you for the reminder. Um, but she was at Eisen for many, many years. But yeah, it was like, it, it was sort of a pat on the back. Like you work really hard. We, we know you can get the job done. So we, cause I would even there was working till 10 PM. I don't know if it was my work ethic, if it took me longer or like, it, it just was like, I was always working for them and I was making boards late at night. I mean, a lot of our team was there late, you know, doing the CAD design, the this, the that. And so she knew that I would get it done. But then what I talk about in the book is that I realized that that one day off, I was still working around the clock and sewing and creating and that how could you have a business if you're working one day a week, if you're going to just do, if you want to put it all in and do it. And so I did go back to Helen, I think probably a few months later, thanking her for this opportunity and that I wished I, I could do that. But I knew in my heart that there was no way I could just go out and do this if I didn't dedicate, you know, seven days a week <laughs> versus one day a week, because it was a lot of, it was a big toll on me. And then at 24 is when you launch Boy Meets Girl. And we're definitely going to get into that logo in a little bit. But how did you find your voice when you started your brand? How did you find what you wanted your brand to really represent? So um, I was interviewed, there was a trade show. So I left IZOD and I started freelance designing. And I started doing menswear CAD designing for all my friends in the business. So I had money as I was making my line for this first trade show. The trade show that I was, um, that I showed my portfolio to that I got accepted into was called the Workshop Trade Show with 60 Designers. And that was with um, Peter Som and Gary Graham, Liz Collins, Rebecca Minkoff, um, you know, so many great designers that were around me for that show. And that show was supposed to be the week of 9-11. So prior to that, I was designing hippie flowy shirts with embroidery, like very much from my like college days. And they had like a tight bodice with flowy, you know, uh, arms. And then I had these ribbon cinch shirts that um, I had at the time had 
all these ribbons that I had found that had Americana, that had animals, that had stripes, that had hearts. Like it was this whole ribbon fiasco. And I created a ribbon cinch that came right at your chest um, that flattered your breasts area at any shape size. And then I had screen printed and created the Boy Meets Girl logo. So I had like streetwear, athleisure, hippie, eclectic ribbons. Like it was just like this, like my head came out first trade show, first creative. So getting back to your question, how did I find my voice is that trade show obviously didn't happen because of 9-11 and leaving my job going out on my own and then going into my first show and then an, a terrorist attack happens to our city um, was, you know, for any of us, no one cared to do whatever we were doing. And all we wanted to do was be there for, you know, anyone at that moment on the ground floor, friends of friends, you know, anything we could do. And so it was like, holy shit, <laughs> you know, like, you know, businesses are going, we lost businesses, businesses went out of businesses, and then other people are starting businesses. And I was at, I was at this point of, do I go into fashion now? Do, is this, is this what I'm supposed to do? Or am I supposed to be a medic? Like, am I supposed to go to, you know, I didn't understand sort of at that moment what I really was supposed to do, but I knew like sort of, you know, you go back and listen to what, how you started this podcast. It's like where I was from the beginning of time. And it was like all coming in my head. And I was like, oh, I'm supposed to do this, but I will now do this and I will be an impact brand. I will, I will like whatever I do, I will educate the youth. I will educate my consumer with what is happening around us. And so when that next trade show, when that trade show was rescheduled, which was a month later, that particular collection, I donated to the American Red Cross from victims of 9-11 and their families. And that's how I led my career. And that's how I decided I would continue. And that's how I've led it for the past 20 years. So um, it was a really, and then I was in business. Like, you know, like I said, people lost family members. We've lost, we lost 3000 people in 9-11. We, you know, businesses went out of business. And like, here I was going into business. So it was a really insane time. And, um, but I had led, you know, with that mission and, and I was the hottest boot. I, and my mom was standing there with me with an FIT intern. Um, my first buyer is Tracy Margulies who put me on the map at Bergdorf Goodman, who I was just on a live with her. She's the head of Saks now. Um, and you know, here I am. So that, that line that went into Bergdorf Goodman and went into every specialty store across the country was, donated back to American Red Cross from victims of 9-11 and their family. And then I continued that mission that I would start to do things that meant something to me or I knew would be important to educate my consumers. So anti-bullying, breast cancer awareness. I, I just had a friend call me today who is diagnosed with breast cancer and she called me specifically 
because she knows the past 20 years of work that I've done with the Lynn Foundation, with the Young Survival Coalition for Breast Cancer, because she says, you know who the resources are. And so it's like, this is how I've led, you know, and I, I, I could only do that because there was no way I could be in business if I didn't do that. I have a list of just some of the organizations that you have helped support it. Young Survival Coalition, Bully Bust, Human Rights Watch, Glam for Good, Youth Over Guns, and Survival Corps. And that's just some of the ones that I quickly was able to find. But I know that this is so important. And we'll definitely get into um, your Fox series and what that looks like and how that has come about. But real fast, the Boy Meets Girl logo, your husband, Brian, helped design that with you when you guys were still dating. But when I was reading your book and you mentioned Gilmore Girls, which is <laughs> my one of my favorite shows. And the second you mentioned it, I was able to close my eyes and completely picture what episode, what scene Lorelai Gilmore was wearing that shirt. Oh my God, like close so- my eyes. I can see it now. And for listeners, I will put a screenshot up of that <laughs> image because you if you're a fan you'll know exactly what I'm talking about but what did that mean for you to have your shirt featured on a hit show by the lead actress that kind of seemed like that was the tipping point for you to break into that it wasn't really influencer marketing at the time but it was started that kind of trend Right. It was like, there was no social media. Right. So it's like, how did you get your product there? Um, yeah, that was back in the day. (laughs) I'm like, OG. um, it's all about the OGs this week. Um, so, you know, stylists, you would work with a different way than you do. Oh, I guess what you do now too, but like they were much more, I guess, hands-on and pulling product and coming to see you. And, um, and so you, I formed a lot of great relationships with these amazing stylists. And one of them was a stylist on Gilmore Girls. And I don't think nowadays most people would put like a branded item unless it was like paid for, you know, that a lot, I mean, some not to say that's not true. Like, I I think a lot would, but like, it's a little different, right. Um, for that placement. (laughs) So it was, she called in my product and, and she said, you know, we're going to have it on, on Lorelai Lauren Graham. So I was like, okay. And, but I didn't know like the feature, like how much it would be on the screen, which was like outrageous. And, and what you said is interesting because it really was this change of like Bloomingdale's seeing it, right? So I had launched in Bergdorf Goodman. I had started being in every major retailer in 2002 to 2005 um, from Bergdorf. And then it started to be Saks. And then Bloomingdale's came up, I think on around that time or maybe like right before, but it was like validation that, oh, we've got to carry that brand. Right. And then, and there was no social media, there was no digital marketing, but they were like, we saw all that. That's, let's bring that on. So that was like instrumental, that placement. And, and it's so iconic because that placement every like day is seen still. 
like it, it comes back on TikTok. It's like very big in Europe. So that particular during the fall, we all go back to Stars Hollow and everyone rewatches it. So it's like every <laughs> right. year. It's every year they did like a whole BuzzFeed rewind on it. Um, and that is my number one selling shirt since like since it launched at that first trade show in Burger Goodman to that scene there. We'll put the link in this episode show notes. So if listeners want to dress like Lorelai and get the shirt, the OG shirt, they can definitely do that. Um, Now you express in your book how partnerships, both externally, but also investors, and you named them investor A, B, C, and D. Obviously that can show listeners that you've had a few, both the highs and the lows. What advice would you really give business owners who are looking to get investors or maybe sell part of their business to get capital? Because you've had both really great experiences because you're still with Investor D now or Partner D, um, (laughs) but you also have some kind of horror stories. Yeah, definitely horror stories. Um. Yeah, so my partner A, B, C, and D is considered your series A, B, C, and D, right? Like, so in the traditional business school, you learn about how to raise capital from VCs or private equity or angel investors. And mine wasn't your traditional route, but it's it's very much like a fashion route, like in the industry. Um, so it's not totally off. Um, but to find investment in our industry and how to go about it. I'm glad I had the experience I did. Um, But the advice I'd have is like to vet those companies that you are interested in partnering with by going on like six different meetings, meeting the teams, understanding like what your strengths are now and what they bring to the table. A lot of what happened to me in my journey is that I was at this cross point of growth and needing the money, right? Needing the finances. Sometimes when you need it, you rush into something. And I don't think my those experiences are necessarily wrong that I went in A, B, and C because they got me to the next phase in my career and helped instrumentally in financing. Um, But I don't think you should rush um, if you can, right? Because a lot of times you need it. Like you, for survival for your company, you're looking for that influx of cash flow. You need that investment. And if you don't get it, you can't pay your employees. Um, or you can't pay your factories. And so a lot of times those were those needed times. Um, but I think now there's there's more resources and there's more ways to find financing from for women, for young businesses, for you know getting grants and getting bank loans. And so I think there's definitely every business has a different structure, but I think you should really, vet who the team is, what do you really want out of the partnership? Are you willing to lose, you know, 
creative control? Are you willing to lose percentage of your company to give the equity and give more equity of your company? So when you do become a lot bigger and you sell off, like you're only get 20% of your company, are you willing to lose that to get the finances now? And most people in the fashion business are usually in that spot. Um, and I don't, it depends on what you really want of, of your business. And if we think about when people get VC money, they're still in that same place. Like the difference between where I was and in, in someone receiving VC money is VC money pumps in, right, for the growth. But you can quickly put all that money in and lose your company. And I know many people who that's happened to. So I was able to keep my company, keep the creative control, but had some, if once you read the book, have had you know, ups and downs in those partnerships. And so it's really important to dive into what are your needs and what are your resources and what do you need to get you to that next level? And if it's willing to lose a little percentage and you feel aligned with that particular partner, I would say move forward. But I would vet you have LinkedIn now, you have digital, you know, you have social media, you can find out all about those people and do your research before you dive into a partnership. And, you know, it's really interesting because in the book, I share some other people and their stories with their partners. And some people have from the beginning out of the gate, met each other later in business and aligned in their strengths. One person's doing the marketing, one person's the acupuncturist one, you know, so sometimes you come into a partnership and it's perfectly aligned because you meet on exactly what you need. But for me, it's been like, I, until I got to partner D, <laughs> which, you know, he shines my book. We, I was ready for that partnership that we've, we've still been partners for six years and that we came in with our different strengths. And I think for me, it was like doing to know how to be because I started at 24 and you can talk about going to business school and getting your MBA and doing this and doing that, getting your certificate. But when you're actually doing it in it, that's your business school for me. You know, I, I'd love to go back to learn, you know, learn some of the pieces. I got a business certificate, but to see what they're teaching, because a lot of the, how do you say that? The idiosyncrasy, is I'm saying that wrong. The, the, all the little minutia that happens within a business, you're not learning in business school unless you are shadowing that business for three years. I would agree. I went and got my MBA, but Sorry. I think having <laughs> on-hand experience, especially with marketing, is so much more impactful than just reading it out of a textbook. Um, when I was reading your book, it seemed to me that you have always been a few steps ahead, whether it's like partnerships with hospitality, working with artists, musicians, other retailers, it the list goes on and on. But two um, aspects I really want to touch on is one is like the fuck series, which is style that makes a statement. And these are the um, fuck anti-Semitism, fuck racism, fuck bully shirt. I actually just ordered the anti-Semitism one. And what I love is that 50% of the net proceeds go to different organizations based on the shirt. That's, so right. that's one aspect that I was like, you were so far 
ahead than other brands doing partnerships like that and wanting to get back. The other is NFTs. Yes. You are one of the first designers who really work with artists uh, with NFTs. You work also with a group now, NFG. Can you talk about how you decided to not only get into that NFT space, but you've always stayed a few steps ahead than other designers, which as someone who's in marketing, I wanted to be like, I want to pick your brain. How did you see the trends happening before they really became trends? Yeah. Um, you know, so for me, going back to the give back and being a impact brand, you know, it was from the beginning, right? Because of where I was. And so that's how I led into those different series of give back and different organizations. And so that, you know, became uh, very much new vogue and cool in the past few years, but that, as you can see, has been for the past 20 plus years. Um, so that sort of speaks to my cause initiatives. And then with NFT space and, and also gaming, you know, these were, I was approached for gaming in like 2009 by a gamer. Um, it was called fashion fantasy game. And this woman who came from the actually shaper space started this game. And what I loved about the game was that we, she had partnered with um, a school in New York and it was about educating the students on design, but through the game. And so whoever created their avatars with their boy meets girl hoodie and, and their designs would win this experience, a one-on-one -on -one experience in my studio to learn about the business. And so for me, I was like, oh, that's exactly like what I love to do and like why I have cause related product and like bringing education to the forefront so that the future of our fashionistas will learn and understand the business. And so I just thought that was so fascinating. That was 2009. And we actually partnered with Bloomingdale's on that where you could actually buy the item like off the game. So this is like before Roblox, which I have a partnership with now. Um, and so like NFT is like, I just came off of a live um, with Time Magazine today about, I was a co-host today on Twitter about, you know, some people like poo-poo the name NFT, which is non-fungible tokens. But it's it's more about like the Web3 experience, right? So for me, I started with no digital media, no social media, grassroots marketing to all of a sudden being from like 2008 to now the immersion of dot-com, social media, brand pages, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, Tumblr, Wanilo, you name it, you know, being fully immersed in it to understand it as a humanizing the brand in this, this new space. So as a founder, having to learn all these things. And as Web3 starts to come about, it was just sort of this natural place for me to be because I'm about community. I'm about give back. I collaborate with thought leaders. I collaborate with artists and musicians and designers and scientists and like all these people doing different things because I love that. And I bring those people to our community to learn so that our community can learn about them. So hearing that there's this space that's decentralized, which decentralized means that for an artist, you can have a 
place to sell a product and it will be then seen that who has bought it. And then if they resell it, you can see who resold that and everybody makes money in a commission. And so that's like such a great thing. If you think about it, like if I sold, if I go back in time and those first bags I designed or this, that first t-shirt I designed, and I only had six of them and I put those on the blockchain and I know who would have that now. Like I, I know that because people share that on Instagram now. They're like, I bought this like 15 years ago at Bergdorf's, you know, but imagine if I like really knew my holders now, I'd be like, I know millions of more people, you know? And so I was fascinated that we can track this, right? And actually today there's a, a big announcement. I think Sotheby's announced a um a new chain that there are a new uh what is it called? Oh my goodness. A like a a platform for artists to curate, which is interesting. Web3, but anyway, so I just I was like, okay, this is me. This whole space is where I, I am. And I've been on Twitter since the day Twitter started because Twitter, when I was doing a seminar at Bloomingdale's, the girl at Bloomingdale's who's helping me at that seminar on 59th Street in 2009, I think it was, was like, do you know what Twitter is? It just happened. It, it just started today. <laughs> and I was like, what's Twitter? I swear to God. So I've been on Twitter since like the day it started, right? Because of this girl at Bloomingdale's who I love so much. And I think we're Facebook friends, but so... <laughs> So like when Twitter spaces opened up, I was like, I'm here. Yes. I'm finally like, I was so early, but I'm here. I can hear you guys. And all these people started saying, Stacey's in Web3. Like, I love that brand. Oh my God, I'm here. I'm, I'm creating this. And, and then I got to hear from all these artists around the world, like about their stories, about their artwork, about their photography. I was like, about their music, like, I was like, this is my world about their nonprofits. I'm like, and we're just listening on a radio space. So that's where I like started to be like, oh, this is really special. And I I listened, I, I did a lot of spaces. I listened when we had Clubhouse for a few months, like, and I started reading a lot of articles. And then one of my best friends who I'm doing um my bookstall event in Chicago with this Thursday, um, Amy Inkin was really researching nfts and was buying some of them and onboarded me to do my first wallet and from there i was just like let me see if this is something that i want to do for boy meets girl but let me take time because i don't i've never i've i've never rushed into something i've, I've taken time to build this company i'm not going to just jump into nfts because it's hot or because this person's doing it i need to know that it's right for boy meets girl um and over like that year, I started to meet all these artists who wanted to collab just like in web one, web two. And that's how I formed the artist meets artist, boy meets girl, um, NFT series with 12 artists where I paired them all together without knowing each other. Um, some of them, well, they're all, we're all great friends now. And it was photographers, illustrators, and I put, I've always collaborated like sort of one-on-one -on -one in terms of Chicago Bulls, ex-boy meets girl, Roots, ex-boy meets girl, Care Bears, ex-boy meets girl, Smiley. So I never had an artist. I had artists design within the boy meets girl logo, but I never had an artist meet an artist. And that to me is Web3. So that collaboration came about 
And then we are donating money. Uh, money goes back to each artist and then goes back to the Chicago Abortion Fund in Chicago, which all oh, full circle Chicago. Um, and so that's my first foray into NFTs for Boy Meets Girl. Prior to that, I dabbled in, I bought other artists' NFTs and then I, I launched some of my own personal um, photography pieces that I'd done in London and Paris for Boy Meets Girl or like myself street photography that I had shot and and I put those up but I gave utility which was like a one-on-one with me on Zoom you could get my book when it releases and those like flew off you know I did like three but people scooped those up so I was like oh this is like it makes sense to me um, and so that's really weird like it just was a not it wasn't like you're hearing this and right now if you're a brand you're like I gotta hop on this I gotta be on it it was it's to me it's community I built the community again like it's like 20 years of building community some of those people are in web3 some of them aren't I'm still educating them I have an event May 18th in New York where probably everyone there has no clue about web3 and a lot of them don't want to learn it um so but to me, this is this is where we are. Like the traceability of product, the tra- like in fashion, the traceability of artwork. Like this is all. This is just the beginning. And you mentioned NFC, young artist or young, more fashion designer, and who, who came out of like Bergdorf's and other places. Probably, I think she's twenty four. So like where I was <laughs> when I was twenty four. And she is producing product in in New York City, which was where I started producing, and is making the, uh, you get a bag NFT and you get the real physical bag. And it's it's marked with one out of 50, two out of 50, and the pricing is scaled on, you know, if it's 50 of the bag, it's cheaper than the one. Um, And then you have the NFT and it comes with my book. But I just I wanted to support these these artists in the space because they're making change and and they see this new future of where it's going. I also, you know, to me, where access product is is so I'm like I've been in places in my beginning of my career where we overproduced because you had to trace where your product would be. Um, for those specialty stores or the department stores before you got the orders. But so like I've seen like the access of product and like how awful that is on a designer also on our environment. And so I love where like we can be with this in terms of for product and for fashion, you can have it judged, you can have it voted, you can have a community to see it um, and before you even produce it. Um, So there's just like, I've been doing a lot of that since 2015 in terms of that type of model. Um, so I just think this is where where we're going. And if you hear about like Starbucks, like you don't even know it's an NFT, but they've implemented this. Most companies right now, it's it's a marketing, for some companies it's marketing like the old days of like, you buy this, you get this for free, right? That's one way of how this is working. The other way is community. And how you can build a beautiful community that really supports your initiatives. And that's what I love about it. Stacey, I could keep talking to you. I loved your book and I would tell listeners to definitely go ahead and get it. I'll include all the links that we talked about. But one aspect of the book that I really loved 
was conversations between people in your life who have been there since you started, who you've met through different collaborations. And I think those interviews at the end of your book are so powerful because it shows various sides of you, as well as you interviewing others who were groundbreaking in their fields. Um, So thank you so much for being so open and vulnerable in this book. I end every episode with the final three questions. And the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would that be? So I have a lot of them, but I think for this one, it is um, keep smiling. It makes people wonder what you've been up to. I really like that. The second (laughs) question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? I think there's two. (laughs) Um, I love my wedding day um, because everybody was there and from just friends, family. It was just beautiful. And then I was 33 hours of labor with Dylan, but I wouldn't, I would go back because it was like, uh, it was crazy and insane, but that's my life. And, and, um, and it was just like this journey with my husband. Um, that was really like, he was so supportive and it was just a beautiful moment. So I think like those two, you know, it's interesting when you think about those things, it's like, I've had so many amazing career highlights, but it ultimately comes back to me and like in family. And for listeners in the book, you learned that you were working up until you went into labor. You were planning on actually interviewing someone and apologize to them because you were in labor, which I thought was so funny. True. Pooja. <laughs> she can tell you the story. <laughs> the last question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? Okay, so this is a new one, and I'm going to actually have it on a reel this week because I'm obsessed with it because I have so many songs that I love, and I'm actually on a a live tomorrow about music as therapy on AMP radio. But okay, so it's ADMT is the artist, and it's his cover. He does lots of covers, and it's by Trinix and Rush Sean, and it's called It's a Beautiful Day, and it is amazing it will lighten up everybody's morning well i'm excited to hear it and i will add that to the for your listening pleasure theme song playlist on spotify and stacy again thank you so much i look forward to seeing you on thursday and i'll put all the event information for both the chicago event as well as your may 18th event in new york in this episode show notes thank you so much it was great talking to you and i can't wait to see you 